Well, thank you all. It's a real privilege to be here today and for the way you've welcomed uh, my family. My heart was strangely warmed when I went in the last service. Hey, that was a good line. Um, in the last service, when you began with a Charles Wesley hymn, and I thought, oh, these are my people. And that's so wonderful. Um, we're United Methodists, but we have a, a strong affinity. Of course, Methodism finds its roots in Anglicanism. And uh, we, are, we are both people of the book, and I suppose in some ways of the books. And, and that's an, such an important thing. You know, it's, it's a privilege to be here to talk to you about Coleridge today, because so often Coleridge, I think, is left to the, the literary folks alone. And there's a way that in the early 20th century, the attention to the great British romantic poets sort of captured a group of thinkers as literary to the exclusion of some of their theological and religious reflections. And what a loss that is when we start to separate out those parts of people as if they are only a poet and not also a Christian. So for me to start with Coleridge today with you all is just a, a great gift and I am so grateful for the chance to share with you. And in some ways I have an open, uh, open table before us, a bit of a buffet. I have some readings and I hope you have uh, possibilities, uh, uh, excerpts from those with you. And I think that creates possibilities for us in a discussion. You know, what's really exciting, and you may not know this, but I'm, I'm here to tell you it's fact. And if anyone wants to argue with me, you'll have to do it afterwards, not during this session. But between 1701 and 1891, so essentially 200 years, between 17, well, let's say 1703 to be technical, 1703 and 1891, there are three great Anglican theologians. Did you know this? There are. There are three truly great Anglican theologians between 1703 and 1891. The first, of course, is John Wesley, who I have already just praised. You're getting a, an extra dose of Methodism. Maybe you need more. I think there was a Methodism talk recently, yes. wasn't there? I hope your hearts, again, were strangely warmed. <laughs> and hopefully you sang a hymn or two, uh, at least if not then, in this, this morning's service or, or what's coming. The third is the great 19th century thinker and theologian and churchman, John Henry Newman. His life ends in 1891, and of course, he becomes Roman Catholic literally halfway through his life. I guess it's technically 1890, I should have said. Uh, the dates are always a little bit fuzzy, but it, I could have probably tricked you. It would have been just fine. But in 1845, Newman becomes Roman Catholic and spends the last 45 years of his life as a Roman Catholic. But I would venture to say that Newman's influence in the Church of England continued, despite the fact that he was Roman Catholic. He was, in many ways, the most famous of all of the Anglican theologians in the 1830s and 40s, which led to so much controversy when he eventually made his way to Rome. So on the one hand, you have the great John Wesley with his brother Charles, with the evangelical revival, but they, of course, never left the Church of England. And on the other hand, you have John Henry Newman, who is in his own way seeking to revive the Church of England, but through a more sort of Anglo-Catholic kind of vision, a recovery of the early church, a recovery of traditions. So on the one hand, you have a kind of revivalism, small group meetings, biblical study, hymn singing, a sort of very contemporary vibe, even if we don't think of it that way, perhaps now. And on the other hand, you have a kind of Anglo-Catholicism, a 
a more high church movement that leads to a deepened reflection on the sacraments and so forth. Yes, are you seeing the vision of the bookends here? So between 1703 and 1891, you have these two great thinkers. And right there in the middle is one more reformer that we often overlook because he has been taken up as a literary figure and because also, I should say, he was a bit controversial. Now, there is nothing that is uncontroversial about either John Wesley or John Henry Newman, I should tell you. They, too, have plenty of controversy, but I have not been invited to speak about them today. So I will only tell you that things were written and said about them that would cause plenty of controversy. And since I'm a Wesleyan, I always at least mention Wesley had a bad breakup with a girl while on a missionary trip, refused communion to her after she married someone else, and it did not go well. So there we go. <laughs> Wesley has his issues. Amen, brother? Oh, what was that? Sorry. Uh, uh, well, we can talk again afterwards about who, who belongs and who doesn't. But Newman had his own controversies. We're going to leave him to the side. Poor Newman. We don't want to give him too much press. He is a saint recently, so we should just let him uh, rest in peace, you might say. Um, but Coleridge is our middle figure, and he is often overlooked, as I say, because he is both controversial and because he has often been taken up as an exclusively literary figure. Right? Does that make sense then? So you have a truly kind of famous preaching out there in the streets and in the squares guy like John Wesley. You have a very well-known writer like a John Henry Newman who's involved in controversy. But Coleridge, what do we do with a guy like Coleridge? I feel like I should start singing a song about Maria right now. What do we do about a problem like Coleridge? Because here's the thing. Coleridge is born in 1772. By the way, I'm not going to lecture you the whole time. But I feel like you're getting the facts already here. You've already memorized Wesley, Coleridge, Newman, and now you have Coleridge in the middle, born in 1772. He is actually raised in the home of his father, who is a vicar. He has a church background. But here's the thing. His dad dies. His father is a, uh, is a, a teacher. He is a minister. And he is very influential. In, but his father dies when Coleridge is very young. Off Coleridge goes from around the Bristol area of England over towards London, where he studies in Christ Hospital. And young Coleridge, raised in a sort of what we would think of as a boarding school, yes? He is in a boarding school, and he has his own kind of journey there. He's a very, very bright young man, and he comes under the influence of lots of different figures, but he's away from home. And he himself is always a bit of a kind of sickly, troubled kid. Coleridge is not our ideal churchman, you might say, because when we think of his story, we don't think of someone that we, is always the most pious, yes? So he starts to get into a bit of trouble. He's super smart, but also uses his brains in all sorts of interesting ways, ends up at Cambridge under a scholarship that makes it possible for him to be there. And at Cambridge University, he comes under the throes, as many parents worry when they send their kid off to college, know about this. He comes under the influence of Unitarians while he is there. The Unitarians are a kind of rising party, you might say, a rising group of thinkers. People like Joseph Priestley, who of course was a scientist, but also a theologian in his own right. That sort of influence was being felt at Cambridge. And under the influence of figures like that in their writings and some teachers, it wasn't really allowed at Cambridge, and it did cause controversy. In fact, one of his own profs 
was brought on charges. And it is said that Coleridge was in the balcony, sort of leading charges of chance, defending the professor, you know, this sort of thing, like rabble rousing right there. Coleridge was really taken in by this, so that by the time he leaves Cambridge, not actually willfully, he had a bit of a problem with money. And he used it in all sorts of ways that was not appropriate. He was drinking too much. He had ladies and so on and so forth. And as happens sometimes to university students, he up and joins the military as a way of escaping his debts. In fact, he signs in under a false name that mimics his own initials. And the funniest thing about that, by the way, I'm giving you all the sort of sorted bits here because people love the sorted bits of Coleridge, is he joins the military, but he is in the Light Dragoons, which, of course, as you all know, surely, about the Light Dragoons, is a horse unit. The problem with Coleridge is he does not know how to ride a horse. So Coleridge is there. He has joined the military. He is escaping debts, signed in under a false name. This is the early 1790s. Rev, uh, French is going through revolutionary fervor, and Coleridge is now in a position of the military. How does he even get by? Well, of course, because he's so smart, he can write love letters for all of his colleagues in the military on their behalf. So they all sort of make good for him while he writes for them on the sly. Now, eventually, this is starting to catch up with him. And Coleridge, who I think you're getting a sense of his personality, he's a talker, he's a writer, he's everything except a horse rider. His brother has to come in and sort of save the day. So they get him out. They try to send him back to Cambridge, but it doesn't work out so well, honestly. So Coleridge does eventually drop out of Cambridge. But all is well and all is not well in his life, because I told you he's a sort of sickly guy but he's also a really kind of interesting intellect. He heads off to the West Country again, back to the Bristol area, where, by the way, Methodism is thriving. In fact, if you ever have a chance to go over to England, I would encourage you to find your Anglican friends in the, in the, in the Wesleys. And in Bristol, where most of the city was bombed out, of course, during the war, World War II, there are only, it's a very kind of modern looking city in many respects, because many of the buildings were just destroyed. In fact, a lot of our records from the Bristol um, uh, uh, libraries and churches and so forth are gone as a result. But the Wesley's first meeting house is there still. If you go right between a couple of shops, you'll see a little pathway and it leads in. And it's wonderful. You can get right into Wesley's pulpit if you want. And, and, and it's wonderful. And, and Coleridge is there in Bristol, where there's all of this energy. There's a ferment. Methodism is thriving. So that means you have street preaching. But also dissent is happening as well. And this is a shipping port. So there are people speaking out against the slave trade. And Coleridge, as a Unitarian, is in fact doing the same thing. He is speaking out against the slave trade. He is preaching in the streets against the government. And this is a time when this is potentially seditious. It is a time when people get thrown into prison for the things they say about the king or about the nation. And you say to yourself, I thought we came here to hear a good Anglican, and now you're giving us this very sordid fellow. What happens? Well, just a little longer with the fun of the story of Coleridge, and then we'll talk about something here. You see, Coleridge is out speaking and preaching. He's trying to raise some money because he and his friend Robert Southey have a dream. They will create a utopian society in America, and everyone will be equal. They'll work together, they'll farm, and so on and so forth. But of course, some of them will write poetry. 
So Robert Southey and Coleridge and another guy or two, they all quickly marry. Actually, they marry three sisters. Uh, Coleridge marries a young lady named Sarah, and so on and so forth. Well, the problem is the utopian dream, this pantisocracy it's called, fell apart very quickly. But the marriages remained. So Coleridge found himself very soon in a very unhappy marriage, a guy who had a lot of health problems and was a rather radical Unitarian kind of preacher, a speaker. And with these troubles, he began to use opium, which was not uncommon at that day, especially those who did a little research on their own on the interwebs. And Coleridge was an addict. It was in that context that by the time of the end of the 1700s, the end of the 1790s, with all the turmoil socially and politically, and in the turmoil of his own life, Coleridge had two things happen. One, he developed a very important friendship with a young man named William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy. And that friendship proved pivotal for the development of the British romantic literature that many consider to be among the greatest works in the history of English literature. And the second thing that happened, and that's just to keep this through line working here for a moment, is that a couple of years after those two had some of their greatest collaborations, Coleridge went to Malta, Italy, in order to escape some of his troubles, to escape his health problems, hopefully, hopefully his opium addiction, to escape his unhappy marriage, though he'd already had a few children. And while he is in Malta, Coleridge is reading the works of many of the controversialists of the time, people like Bishop Horsley. And Coleridge comes to the place where he says, no Christ, no God. But there cannot be any hope if we do not have a Trinitarian understanding of God in this world. And Coleridge recognizes his own need for a redeemer, for a redemption of something that he could not give to himself. Now, as a lesson, I think, for all of us, Coleridge does not immediately see his whole life cleaned up. In fact, I would say in some respects, though he has a sort of happy-ish life, in many respects, none of those problems ever went away. He eventually remains at a distance, though cordially so, from his wife and his children. His health problems and addiction to opium do not disappear. He only can hope to keep it at bay, which he does more or less through the help of friends and people like a physician, the Gilman family, that take him into their home in London. And they sort of watch over him, though even then, on the sly, it is known that he is finding extra doses of opium. And his radicalism, in some ways, continues, though in some way, other ways, he changes. And that's the nature of life, isn't it? That the things that we sort of thought through early on, they don't entirely disappear when you've had a full change of mind. Sometimes they continue with you, but now in a new form. And that's a bit of the journey here. Well, I've given you a part of this. And by the way, I am totally OK with you just raising your hands. And I'm so glad you already did, but I'm not going to entertain that discussion of Charles Gore. <laughs> who is clearly inferior to the three I've mentioned, but that's OK. God bless him. Um, <laughs> but I want you to know that you can always jump in and ask me something. And I'll, I'm very happy to just say, not now, um, or to entertain it. And I'm, I'm OK with that. 
So on your handout, I've given you a selection from one of the great works of the British Romantic period. It is not necessarily everyone's famous, uh, favorite work, but it is a very famous work, and it's a very quotable work. And so I thought it would be fun to give you this. You see, one of the things that's happening here is right around 1797, 1798, we have what is sometimes known as the sort of year of wonders, in which some say the British Romantic movement really takes flight. Wordsworth and Coleridge were wandering around the Quantocks of Western England, a beautiful landscape. They were looking at nature, they were thinking about the soul of the human and that sense of like what it is that captures us. They were thinking about God's work in our lives and nature itself, the pastoral landscape. And Wordsworth becomes quite expert at writing about nature. Coleridge is quite good as well, don't get me wrong, but Wordsworth is seen as sort of the peak, you might say of nature writing, even today, many people look to Wordsworth for that sort of vision. And Coleridge turns his attention more towards the supernatural. He wants to think about how even the most ordinary circumstances have this sort of spiritual, supernatural thing going on. Now what's interesting about this is this poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, is written during his Unitarian period, but reflects many beliefs that today people would still say really resonate with even the most orthodox of Christians. There is a sense of deep meaning, of a need for redemption. And you can hear it in here. I, I don't think I have to read the whole thing, but let me read just a little bit. It might be fun for you. And again, I'm, I'm happy to have your voices in this, so feel free to jump in. Um, but maybe to keep it moving, I'll just read some. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stoppest thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, gray beard loon. Eftsoons his hand dropped he. So you, you see where we are here, yes? There's a guy, he's heading to a wedding. He's about to enter into the wedding, and here comes this kind of grizzled old man, a mariner and he sort of grabs him, and he holds him with his glittering eye. It's sort of a theme, you've maybe seen this in a movie or something like that, where someone has this kind of eye, and he's can't quite, like mesmerized a bit, yeah? You with me? He holds him with his glittering eye, the wedding guest stood still, and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone, and he cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbor cleared, merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. Now you can hear, this is the mariner speaking. He's telling his story. He has the will of this young man. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he. And he shone bright and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day, till over the mast at noon, the wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. And on it goes, talking about this trip, this, this vessel, vessel out on the high seas. They're traveling around, the sloping of the masts. It's, it's a whole description. And you see on the second column there, and now this is third uh, stanza down. Now came both mist and snow, it grew wondrous cold. The ice, mast high, came floating by as green as emerald. And he's describing this sort of scene of polar exploration, 
capturing the vision of what everything that's happening at that time as sailors are going around the world and travel literature is so popular. The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swell. At length, it crossed an albatross. Through the fog it came, as if it had been a Christian soul. We hailed it in God's name. It ate the food it ne'er had eat, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit. The helmsman steered us through. And a good south wind sprung up behind. The albatross did follow. And every day, for food or play, came to the mariner's hollow. In mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, it perched for vespers nine, while all the night, through fog smoke white, glimmered the white moonshine. God save thee, ancient mariner, from the fiends that plague thee thus. This is the young man speaking. Why lookest thou so? And the mariner says, with my crossbow, I shot the albatross. Now, just briefly, turn to your neighbor and say, you know what I think is going on with this albatross and this mariner killing it? Here's what I think. I know you don't have a lot to work with. Just say it. Anything that comes to mind. Go ahead. Turn to your neighbor briefly. What do you think? What's, with the, what's the deal with this mariner and the albatross? What's going on here? Briefly. Get that microphone ready, Mary, because Mary, I'm going to take some uh, comments here. I don't know if Mary has that microphone, if it's working or not. Deacon Mary? Oh, she's not listening. Do you have that microphone? I want to take a couple of comments here if someone wants to. You lost it. All right, I'll take it here. What, what's your reflection on this? I need two or three options here. What do you think? Anything stand out for you about this mariner and this albatross? I know I haven't given you much to work with. Just the first conto. Come on, someone want to jump out? Give a guess. Oh, it's the Enlightenment. Do you want to? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Okay, very interesting. Okay, anyone else? That was a deep thought there, Dr. Milner. Anyone else? What's your, just your reaction to? Okay. Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now we do know that he hailed it in God's name, and it was like a Christian soul. Albatrosses are largely seen as like kind of good luck for mariners, you know? You know they can like just fly along forever? In fact, there was yes. years ago a story about um, there was some government plan that maybe they would track, you know, pirating vessels and, and whaling ships with albatrosses with a little kind of sensor around them because they would track with the ships. And then, of course, environmental uh, groups were concerned because then all of the boats would try to kill the albatrosses lest they be followed. So this is a sort of interesting theme of the great albatross. Um, well, let's just go a little longer. Then I'm going to jump to other things. I could spend probably hours on this poem with you. <laughs> now the sun rose up upon the right. Out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And so what did he say? He's saying that there's, there's you know, they kept on traveling. Skip down a, a paragraph, though, or a stanza there. And he says, and I had done a hellish thing, and it would work him woe. For all of it, I'd killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the birds to slay that made the breeze to blow. Now, then, so they're starting to get worried here, because after the death of the albatross, 
things go badly. Nature itself seems to be impacted this. And wherever they went, the sails start to drop down. You'll see this in a few stanzas later. The sails drop. That means the wind has broken, yes? All in a hot and copper sky, bottom of that same column. The bloody sun at noon, right above, up above the masted stand, no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water, everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water, everywhere, not any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, O oh Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. And then to the bottom of that column, Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from young and old, instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. Well, we will, we will not spend the whole day reading this, but suffice it to say, many interpreters today read this poem as in many ways an Augustinian conversion. Out of nowhere, the mariner kills the albatross, a sort of Christian soul, for no reason at all. Isn't that how sin seems to be, the actual sin of our lives? For no good reason did we just suddenly do the thing that we ought not to have done. And it seems that Coleridge is playing this out through the story of the mariner. He kills the bird, and the effect on nature and on his fellow shipmen is severe. They all drop down one by one after they curse him for his deed, and he alone stays in the ship as the fates play with him, his uh, soul and his fate. And in the end, spoiler alert, the mariner sees those slimy things <coughs> in the water and he blesses them unaware. And when that happens, the albatross falls like lead, dropping into the sea, falls off of him, a bit like a bunion conversion. The weight of sin falls off of him. So even in this period, this, uh, this uh, poem appears in the great lyrical ballads of 1798, which is seen as the watershed of the Romantic movement. And even here in this poem, we find Coleridge wrestling with thoughts of the religious life. Now, the next selection here, we're not going to read this in full, but this is the part you'll only hear here, folks. You'll only get this one from me. Because what is little known when that poem is taught, and that poem is taught still today in schools all over the world, but what is little known is that actually Coleridge, just before that poem, was reworking the story of Cain and Abel and the aftermath. And it appears in unpublished works that now have recently been published, and it is called The Wanderings of Cain. And he tells a story of Cain wandering around after having killed his brother. And having killed his brother, he has his son with him, which is named Enos, but probably should have been Enoch. And he has an encounter with a ghostly figure at one point, way down uh, into this passage here. But ere they had reached the rock, they beheld a human shape. His back was towards them, and they were advancing unperceived when they heard him smite his breast and cry aloud, Woe is me, woe is me, I must never die again, and I am perishing with thirst and hunger, and so on and so forth. They have, he has a vision of his dead brother, a ghostly kind of encounter, 
wrecked with guilt, wrecked with guilt, Cain struggles with his own sin. This incomplete work that he was supposed to work on with Wordsworth, they were going to work all night long, and actually Wordsworth sort of falls asleep, and Coleridge keeps working. They give up the plan, and he takes up the rhyme the Ancient Mariner instead. Coleridge is wrestling with questions of guilt. But for our purposes today, let me say this. As much as this is about poetry and about doctrine, it is also very much about the scriptures themselves. Because when we hear a story like the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, or when we hear the wanderings of Cain, which is much more overtly biblical, we are reminded that Coleridge was wrestling with the biblical text and its meaning for our lives still today. It's not hard to hear in a story like The Wanderings of Cain or in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner the resonance with various scriptures, whether in the garden experience of sin or even someone like Paul. Others who, when they are encountered with the bright light of the gospel, find that the scales fall from their eyes and they see more clearly. And they seek true relationships, not only with God, but with one another. So it, the question was, do you want to repeat it? Uh, the question was, uh, what happens with Wordsworth and Coleridge that pushes them down the road to the established church? And I think there's a, a lot of reasons that might be given. I think there's an ongoing conversation among scholars about how deep Wordsworth's piety was. There's no question that his readers often saw him to be very pious and his poetry to be very spiritually enriching. For Coleridge, it's a bit more complicated, but also more overt, because Coleridge continues to write in a theological vein. Even as he's writing literary criticism and poetry, he is writing overtly theological works. And this brings us to the final passage here, where I'm going to take some discussion, and I am just pressing on here. This is a selection, and I hope it complements the reading from the book uh, on figural reading. And it's a longish passage, so I won't read the whole thing. But I, I want to make a point here about Coleridge. Because what he does is Coleridge sees all of life in that kind of biblical theological lens, that encounter with the God who redeems him. But he does not become an active churchman until late in his life. So having been born in 1772, having converted, you might say, in that mystical encounter in Malta, 1805, he does not receive the Eucharist again until Christmas Day, 1827. And he writes in his notebooks, Christmas Day, I've received, I think he says communion, maybe he said the Lord's Supper. I have received the Lord's Supper for the first time since Jesus College, Cambridge. So Coleridge is writing on theology, thinking about the scriptures. In the 1820s, we can trace in his notebooks, he is literally reading and commenting in his notebooks on the Bible almost every day for a few years, commenting extensively. So his own relationship to the church is complicated. He sees himself, in one sense, very much defending Christianity, but also, as an Anglican, not always the most observant. I can't help but wonder if for Coleridge, his own deep sense of guilt 
the struggle of his failed marriage, the struggle over his absent relationship to his children, the opium, the failed friendships, all of those in some ways created barriers for him as he wrestled over what the gospel looks in his own, like in his own life. Well, one step further here then, and that is this. Coleridge thought deeply about the scriptures, and as I said before, the greatest theologian before him was? And the greatest after him was? John Henry Newman. You weren't as enthusiastic about that. That's okay. I'll take, I'll take the Wesley. <laughs> With, well, Keeble, all right, 1829. We'll, we'll go with Christian year if that helps you. But Colbert's almost dead at that point, 1834. All right, so, um, so here's the thing. With the advent of the Wesleys and the rise of that revival, and it was kind of a lower church movement, right? They're preaching outdoors to thousands at a time, quite literally, 9, 10. George Whitfield, who was one of the Methodists early on, was preaching to 27,000 people in the outdoors. Ben Franklin even did a measurement when he was in America to tell if people could actually hear him, and they could. Well, Coleridge was worried that the way people were reading the Bible more and more in that popular spirit, as Bible societies were making access to the Bible, quite literally Bibles available to every home, and literacy rates were starting to rise, so the average ordinary layperson could read the scriptures, Coleridge worried that the tendency of the evangelical revival was leading people to sort of treat the Bible superstitiously. Because of its inspiration, they were tending to say like, ah, every word here must be the word of God in that way that makes it seem actually kind of icky, if that's a technical way to put it, right? Because we know to read the scriptures according to genre, to understand them in their proper context, but Coleridge worried that people were using it almost a bit more like magic, a spell, and that the inspiration of the scriptures, as people were talking about it, was leading people down a path that would not work with modern biblical criticism. Coleridge was very attuned to biblical criticism. He had studied in Germany. He had spent time traveling there. In this passage here, he lays out, actually, this is something for later on, a little homework for you. In the first half of this, he says, there can be no doubt that the foundation of Protestantism has as its one intelligible first position, common to all the reformers, and separate from the faith of the Reformed Church, blah, 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 is the sufficiency of the sacred scriptures as the ground and guide of belief, morals, discipline, in all points necessary to salvation. You can hear him. He is mimicking and paraphrasing the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 articles. He is repeating Article 6, all things necessary for salvation. As little can it be denied that the Reformers, one and all, grounded the sufficiency on the hypothesis of the plenary inspiration of the sacred writers. Remember I told you Coleridge is a controversialist. And Coleridge was worried that that language of plenary inspiration was making the Bible too wooden. Perhaps something along the lines of, uh, of something like a dictation theory akin to Islam. So he says, there's no doubt that the sufficiency of the scriptures is central to the faith of the Protestant reformers. Yes! But he says, but there is also this worry I have that they grounded it on a view of inspiration that might be problematic. No. But here's Coleridge's revolution. Thank you very much. But here, I'm so sorry I haven't let you talk enough. I just, you, you put Coleridge and a microphone in front of me. I, I will go. Um, and so here we go. So skip on down, though, 
the Bible, see this, it's all the way to the third to the last paragraph. The Bible contains, yes? So he says, yes, we have this view among Protestants, and it's central. The scriptures contain everything necessary for salvation. But I'm worried about what's going on here with my Wesleyan fellows, yes? And he says this, the Bible contains all revealed truths necessary to salvation and for all men in all times. And every true believer has the promise of God that whatever, whatever he seeks in the spirit of love and filial trust in the spirit of truth will enlighten him to find as far as it is profitable for him. Or, in all things profitable to our true welfare, the Bible is the infallible guide for every sincere inquirer who reads the letter by the light of the spirit for spiritual purposes and with spiritual desires. Observe, however, that this promise is not required and therefore not extended to those who take up the study of the scriptures as a series of books written by diverse authors in diverse ages for the purposes of understanding the whole historically and philologically. So, whoa. So here's what it, here's what it amounts to. Coleridge is a philosophical theologian as well as a poet and a literary critic and a theater uh, dramatist. He's doing all these things. And when he comes to the scriptures, he approaches them with a literary and theological eye. And he says this, what we must understand about the scriptures, they contain everything necessary for our salvation. But when we read them, we must approach it with its literary sense and view. And he says, somewhat controversially for the times, we should read it like any other book because he wants people not to treat it as a bit of magic, but rather that you'd read it according to genre and its context and its full meaning and its times. But here's the one more thing, and this is gonna be my last main point here. He says that in that inward sense of the spiritual meaning of the scriptures, the poet Coleridge recognizes what happens in poetry because poetry is not just the right words in the right order. It is, in fact, something that reaches us deep within. Uh, in your, in your uh, homily this morning, the Emily Dickinson, I think what made it stand out for you, I think you said in the beginning, is that it, it sort of grabbed you. It, it, it stuck with you. Coleridge says that actually in the reading of the scriptures, it is not enough that there is a Bible is that the spirit moves within us. And as we read, the scriptures are illuminated for us. He thinks that actually the spirit helps us to read the scriptures rightly. He says, actually, what, is, what are the scriptures to me? They are songs for my joy and pleadings for my shame and my suffering. He says, whatever finds me in the scriptures show that it has been sort of given to us as a gift of the Spirit. And for Coleridge then, and this is not unusual in the tradition, but it's something in his own times he thought was necessary. It is not enough to just speak of the inspiration of the scriptures, but even of the way that God is moving in us as we read the scriptures, that they come alive and that God does things in us. You know, let me just say this. As with my colleagues in biblical and theological studies, in graduate school, uh, my training, I had many classes on the Bible. So I knew the Psalms, I suppose, from my academic training. But I never really, 
felt I understood the Psalms until I was in a position of tremendous despair. And when I was in that moment of agony, I found myself unexpectedly turning to the Psalms and not just reading them, but praying them for very life. Praying them, and then the scriptures unfolded to me as never before. The Psalms were my voice. They were my heart through and in the words, even as they were God's word for me and for us. And Colbert's great contribution to a kind of figural reading is he sees Christ everywhere, but not only in the text, even in the way that the spirit of Christ continues to illumine our hearts and minds as we read the scriptures and inwardly digest them even in our reading as a community. So thank you very much for the chance to share with you. Um, we are going to be hearing from our own Dr. Matthew Milner on John Keeble, another great theologian of the 19th century. And a poet, yes. Um, but just did you see the themes, even what we had talked about last week about the Enlightenment and how um, biblical critics wanted to dissect the scriptures. And Coleridge kind of refers to that about that dissecting and treating it just like any other book. But then the Holy Spirit breaks through. And I just thank you so much. It really fit in so well with what we've been talking for. And it was really a treat. And I love the way you read the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> 